and it's a, just a privilege for me to come here and to shake his hand and see him this morning. So, so I, I want to thank the Lord for his grace. We're in Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. My address, if it were to be titled, would be simply called to walk in unity. <clears throat> it's been our privilege uh, my family, myself especially, not only to get to know your, your dear pastor over the course of the last few years, but also to watch. And just so that you know this, my mother used to tell me this, people are watching you, okay? And, uh, and so we have been privileged to watch from a distance and rejoice in the progress and the development of this church. And, and so when Pastor Kenat called me a few weeks ago to ask me if I would be willing to come and speak, I asked him if there might be some subject I could address that might have some particular relevance to you this morning, and he mentioned that you're in the process of instituting church membership, and you're in, the, in, in, in that period of your growth, so could I come and speak along the lines of what it means for believers to live in covenant relationship with each other, and to that end, this, whoa, sorry. This cord probably just be all over the place. Pardon, just let it go. <laughs> the, first, the first text that came to my mind was here in the fourth chapter of Ephesians, which is where we're going to work from this morning. One of the things that I've learned in, in recent years is that things like covenant membership and membership covenants are they're really only powerful and they're really only meaningful in those moments when you wish you weren't in that covenant relationship. Okay, that's when, the, that's when you test the strength of them. As long as you're just happy to be in them, they don't really mean anything, but it's when we have to push the boundaries of them that we begin to feel something of the weight and the significance of them. The bonds of our relationship are really only as strong as they are in moments of adversity. And so you know this as a husband and wife. Your, your marriage is strong, not because you never quarrel, but your, a marriage is strong when no disagreement and no petty argument will ever be allowed to destroy it. And so the strength of your covenanting together as a church is going to be tested and you need to pray that when it is, you will prove strong enough to endure the trials. I say this as someone who's been in and around church for 36, going on 37 years, every year of my life. I have sat under hundreds of sermons and been a part of a church. And I can tell you this because, not because I know you, but because I know people and I know church, you're going to want to quit at times. You're going to want other people to quit at times. And walking away from each other is, at the end of the day, very, very easy. Working through the inevitable effects of sin in our relationships is difficult, painful work, and in those moments, the strength of your commitment to one another is going to be tested and we will pray that it will not be found wanting. And so to that end, I want to direct our minds to the words of the Apostle Paul who is speaking to an Ephesian church. It's a church not unlike yours. It is young. It is fairly newly formed. It wasn't 
standing on a hundred years of tradition here in as Paul is writing, and tragically, this church, I, I, when I read Ephesians, it's always with a little sense of sadness, knowing that Jesus is going to say, some 30 years, give or take, after the writing of this book, you Ephesians have left your first love, and he threatens to remove their lampstand from his, its place, and he eventually does that. But here in Ephesians 4, the church is young, it's vibrant, and the dear Ephesian believers are learning how to live with each other in this thing they've never experienced before, this thing that's called church. Now, the first three chapters of Ephesians are essentially doctrinal. And the strength of a church, you know this, is rooted in her doctrine. We have to have that. <clears throat> but doctrine is really powerless unless and until it finds its way into our ears and into our minds and into our hearts, and then it finds its way out from inside of us, out in our hands and in our lips and in our feet. So, uh, so a doctrine that doesn't actually change a person is, frankly, just a useless novelty. So in chapter 4, Paul begins to take the great doctrines that he's expounded in chapters 1 to 3 and apply them in very practical ways. So we'll read the text again, we'll pray, and then we'll see what the Lord would teach us this morning from this text. Father, thank you for your goodness to us and help us as we work through this text Thank you for your grace to this church. Thank you for your grace that is seen so clearly in the presence of our dear brother Stanley this morning. Thank you for your grace in allowing Pastor Ken and Nikki to take a little breather. And thank you for your grace that has brought us here to this place to worship the matchless name of Jesus. And now help us in the ministry of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> um, my pastor calls the English Standard Version the Extra Special Bible, and the Extra Special Version, I have the NAS, so I call that the Not As Special Version, so that's what I'll be working from this morning, and if you have a phone, you could switch over and follow if you want, otherwise, just so you know where I'm at. Ephesians 4, verse 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you also were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to break down the text this way. We're going to look at Paul's impassioned plea uh, in verse 1. We're going to secondly consider what a worthy walk looks like, and then we'll consider how unity happens within the body of Christ. So we're going to preach a little bit, and then we're going to switch over into seminary mode, and I'll teach you as a teacher, and then we'll, and then we'll preach again at the end, and that's how we're going to move through this text. <clears throat> I want you to take notice that the first thing that Paul encourages the Ephesians to actually do, this is really the beginning of the imperatives in the book of Ephesians, the first thing that he encourages them to do has to do with their relationships to each other. American Christianity says, read your Bible and pray and, and worship Jesus in your own little box, and that's how we do Christianity. 
Paul says, I'm going to give you doctrine, and then I'm going to tell you how to get along with each other. Right? Isn't that fascinating? That this is first and foremost on his mind. The relational dynamic of the church is right at the top of Paul's thinking. So let's look at Paul's impassioned plea. Verse 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, or the, the ESV says, to, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. I think if we summarize this whole text, it would probably sound something like this. Church, get along. Quit fighting. Quit squabbling. You have the same God. You have the same Savior. You have the same Holy Spirit. Why are you so intent on on fighting with other people that the Father has chosen from the foundation of the world, the Son died for, and the Spirit has given life to? And so notice how Paul opens the text. I... The prisoner of the Lord implore you, I'm begging you, walk worthy of your calling. And I want to just begin by, by, by thinking for, with you for a moment about the phrase, the prisoner of the Lord, or the prisoner for the Lord. This is not the first time Paul has mentioned his prisoner status in the book of Ephesians. He starts chapter 3 almost the exact same way. But why does he mention it here? He's, think with me through this. He's going to make a request. He's going to say, I, I implore you to do something. I, I urge you to do something. And, and then he adds the phrase, I, I'm the prisoner of the Lord. He could have just said, I'm begging you to do this. But he doesn't say that. He says, I, who am the prisoner of the Lord, beg you to walk in such and such a way. Hmm. He, he's using that phrase as, as leverage. You know what leverage is? Uh, you know, when you're cranking on a nut with a ratchet and you can't get it, so you grab a big pipe and that, okay, it, it gives you more power, it gives you more force. And that little phrase, the prisoner of the Lord, he's using it as leverage. He's saying, I want you to listen to me. I'm urging you, I'm imploring you, but I'm, I'm imploring you as, as a man in prison, as a man in chains. So what is he doing that for? Is this some sort of sappy emotional appeal? Feel bad for me, I'm in prison, and, and do what I say because, because you feel bad for me. Have some pity on poor Paul. I don't think that's the case. If you look back at verse 13 of chapter 3, Paul says, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf. My tribulations on your behalf. Why is Paul in prison? Well, he's in prison because he was sharing the gospel. He's in prison for his ministry of, of the gospel. When he went to Ephesus to minister the gospel to these people, it was chaos. Uh, there was all sorts of things happened. He's going to say in 1 Corinthians 15, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. There's a direct line between the suffering of Paul and the salvation of the Ephesians. If Paul doesn't suffer, the Ephesians don't get saved. He has blood and sweat and tears invested in the lives of the Ephesian believers. I suffered for your sake. That's what he says back in 13 of chapter 3.
Hmm. So Paul's saying, you need to understand, I have suffered deeply for you. I have bled for you. I am sitting in prison for your sake so you could hear the gospel. And now I'm begging you, get along. It's going to be painful, but it's not as painful as what I've experienced for your sake. It's going to be difficult, but it's nothing compared to what I did for you. And so as you're working through your relational dynamics, I need you to understand that the Christian life involves suffering, and we suffer for each other, and sometimes we suffer because of each other. And the little petty things that you will suffer because of life with each other doesn't compare to what I suffered on your behalf. I think that's what he's saying. This is Paul's impassioned plea. When it gets hard to walk in the worthy calling, to walk worthy of your calling, when you're driving each other nuts, when you want to hang it all up, when you want to go home, remember that I'm sitting in prison, I'm a captive of the Roman government because this is the price that I determined to pay so that you could hear the gospel and so that you could be saved. Don't you dare think that you have suffered so much at the hands of your fellow church members that you can justify your petty squabbles and quarrels. You have a calling, he says. It's a calling, chapter 1, from the foundation of the earth. A calling to be found in Christ. A calling to be justified, to be redeemed, to be granted an inheritance. We inherit everything. I'm jealous for our dear brother who just moved on to 80 acres. How great is that? But the day is coming when we inherit everything. Okay? It's all ours. Look forward to that day. God has called us to that by his grace. We did nothing to deserve that. And beyond that, we've been called to be children of God. Ephesians 4, walk like children of God. Don't keep living like you used to, 4 verse 17. Walk as though, chapter 5, you're walking up that heavenly aisle to take the hand of the great bridegroom Jesus Christ forever and for eternity. Act like that. I'm begging you, he says. Walk worthy of that calling. How do the called walk worthy? This is verse 2, and this is where we're going to get a little didactic here. So bear with me. So verse 2 has one of Paul's famous little lists. And we're going to walk through these words and just talk about what they mean, but I'm going to tell you not only what they do mean, but what they don't mean. And the reason I'm going to do that is because our enemy, the devil, is a master counterfeiter. And, and he has created replicas of each one of these good things, and he has created them so carefully and so craftily that you can actually think that the bad thing is the good thing. And so I'm going to walk through with you and tell you what the words mean, and then we're going to take some time also and, and say what they don't mean. We need to understand that our relationships with each other are rather complex, and we need great wisdom to maintain them 
so they don't fall apart and to put them back together when they do fall apart. So many people read a list like this and we just summarize it in our minds. We just say, well, Paul is just saying be nice to each other. Humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance. He's just saying be nice. And, and that word nice is the key word in our society. It, it, it takes the clothing of all sorts of other words like tolerant and loving, but at the end of the day, it just means be nice, don't offend anyone. And, and our, our culture teaches that, and so it's really easy to import it into the church and Christians are expected to be super nice. After all, we are Christians, right? We have Jesus. So when we run into our list of words like we have in verse 2, it's easy to just hear nice, 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 nice. But these are, these are words that mean certain things, and they don't mean other things. And that's really what is going to give them their power. I was in a situation once <coughs> uh, where I had to, uh, the church board had decided to excommunicate a certain person, and uh, for reasons that were, I'll just leave alone for now. Um, but I went along with the, the, the board to deliver this letter. Uh, we just wrote a letter and said, this is what we're intending to do, or this is why we're intending to do it. And I went to the fellow's house and rang the doorbell, went in, handed him the letter. His wife came down, grabbed it out of his hands, ripped it in half, and he took and threw us out of the house, and as the door slammed behind us, we heard somebody scream, where's the love? Yeah. Where is love in excommunication? Where is love in throwing people out of your house, I might ask. But that's, you see, love doesn't just mean nice. There's a, a different side and in these people's minds, love never disciplines, love never makes anyone feel uncomfortable, and that's really shallow. And if, if a church body can't appreciate the negative side of love, they'll never appreciate the well-rounded nature of a God who is loving and just, and he's kind, and he's wrathful, and so on and so forth. All of these dynamics have to work together. So, here's our words. How do we walk worthy of our calling? God has called us to certain things, to be certain things. Our future, our destiny is a glorious destiny, and we begin to live in accordance with that destiny now. And so here's, the, here's, here's how we do that. The first word is humility. Walk with humility. This is, here's what humility is. Humility is a state of mind. It means to be low-minded. Someone said this, humility is not the making of oneself small when he really is great, but thinking little of oneself because this is, in a sense, the right estimate for any human being, however great, okay? However great you are, you're not that great, okay? That's what he's saying. And so we have to remember that we're not that great. We think low is a low-minded state of mind. Humility in, in, in three is being low-minded, it's a thinking word, and it's in, it shows itself in these three directions. Number one, how I think towards myself. Do I think towards myself correctly? How, what, how, what do I think about myself? So Paul's going to say in Romans 12, 3, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think but think so as to have sound judgment. Think rightly about yourself. 
it is really easy to overestimate our own significance. Have you ever left a job and and thought, that company is going to completely fall apart because I'm not there anymore? It's really easy to overestimate our significance. And isn't it disappointing when they hire some kid straight out of college who doesn't know anything, he does the same thing that it took me 20 years to learn? Isn't that frustrating to you? How easily we're replaced? We are to think humbly towards ourselves, correctly about ourselves, not overestimate our significance. Paul says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. He says to the Corinthians, who regards you as superior? I'm sorry, who thinks you're better than everybody else? Okay, that's that's what he's saying. What did you have that you did not receive? If you did, if, if somebody gave it to you, why are you bragging as if you just didn't receive it. Humility is how we think towards ourselves. It's how we think towards others. Philippians 2, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Don't look out for number one if number one is you. That's that's what it's saying. Humility of mind towards other people. And it's a state of mind in how we think, not only towards ourselves, not only towards others, but how we think towards God, because that affects how God will in turn think toward me. Okay, how I think toward God, there's a direct correlation between how I think towards God and how God thinks toward me. So, for example, Jesus said, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. James 4.10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. First Peter 5 says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. I want you to notice that God loves exalting the humble, but he despises self-exalters. Here's the thing. You and I are going to be exalted. The question is, do we do it ourselves or do we let God do it? Okay? That's what he's saying here. The humble of mind has thinks correctly towards God and doesn't exalt itself, it lets God do the exalting. Proverbs 27.2 says, Let another man praise you and not your own lips. Humility, how do we test that? Well, it's proven by our obedience. And so Jesus is our example. Again, Philippians 2, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Death on the cross. Perhaps the lowest or the humblest station in all of life is that of a slave. And a slave has no rights. And a slave's very existence is defined in terms of obedience to his master. And that's how Paul describes his relationship with God over and over again. I am Paul, the slave of God. I'm God's slave. That's Paul, humble. I I exist to obey God. God. And so we ask ourselves the question, do I obey God? Am I humble toward God? Do I obey Him? And it can work its way down into such things like, do I obey those whom God has told me to obey? And so we ask our children, do you obey your parents? Because God said, obey your parents. And it is pride that causes disobedience. Do we obey our government? Do we obey our leaders in the church? Or does pride stand in the way of Destroying our humility. That's what humility is. Here's what humility is not. And here's the, here's the counterfeit. Humility is not uncertainty 
coming from unbelief. In our society, it is really the epitome of arrogance or the height of pride to say, I am right, and if you don't agree with me, you are wrong. Okay? If you say that, you're going to tick people off. Jesus' words in John 14, when he says, No man comes to the Father but by me, smack of insensitivity and hubris to the culture. How dare Jesus say there is only one way to God and he is it? How dare he not leave some wiggle room for other people's fragile egos? When we stand on the truth of God's word, there are things we are going to be certain about. God has given us his word not just to show us one way or even the best way, but the only way. Humility is defined in our culture as being able to say, I think this is right, it is for me, but maybe it's not for you, and so really uncertainty is a great virtue in religious affairs. But if believers are uncertain about the plain things of God, it is not a mark of humility, it is a mark of unbelief. If we don't, if we don't believe the Bible, we can be uncertain and the world will call us humble. But if we actually and truly believe the Bible, we are going to be called arrogant. But the humility that Paul is talking about here in Ephesians 4.2 is, is not making sure the world calls us humble. It's making sure that God sees us humble. It is, it is God who defines who is truly humble and who is not. The second word is gentleness. Paul says walk with humility and gentleness. The idea of gentleness is it's, it's the word that's translated in the King James as meekness. Um, it has to do with being in full control of ourselves at all times and, and since we're in control we act in kindness and tenderness for the well-being of another. You have in your midst um, construction workers, big strapping young men who are prolific childbearers, their wives are prolific childbearers, let me make sure I get that right. Okay. Big strapping men married to prolific childbearers and so when you have a big strapping young man taking that newborn baby for the first time, this is gentleness. Those big hands that are powerful and mighty and could take that little tiny baby and say, you think you're so tough? I'll show you. And okay, But know that the hands of a big, strong father are gentle, handling that little child as though it, it might break. Even, even a, a father's big, deep, powerful voice is often traded in for something kindler, kinder and gentler as if, as if his very voice might somehow damage the child. And, and, and it's so funny to see these big guys say, oh, hi, baby. Because we don't want to scare it. We don't want to hurt it. We want to be gentle. There's a lot of power there, but we don't, we don't act in full. We don't go into holding our children full throttle as if we're wrestling a steel beam. 
When we interact with each other in the body of Christ, we are to do so with great gentleness, knowing that, that our words and our actions and even the force of our personality can destroy our brothers and sisters if we, if we use them harshly or carelessly. And gentleness has the idea of having some give. Okay? If you hit a person over the head with a brick, you could kill them has no give, but you hit them over the head with a pillow and they laugh at you and they think, they think that you're playing a game. What's the difference? Pillows have give and they're gentle and they're, they don't cause injury. The gentle believer is careful not to injure another. And gentleness towards others doesn't come naturally, but I want you to know that we do know how to be gentle because there's one person that we're gentle with and that's ourselves. That's who we're the most gentle with. Ephesians 5.29 says that every man, even rough men, nourish and cherish themselves. But nourishing and cherishing and being gentle towards others is far more difficult until, until we really develop a, a deep-seated care for the well-being of others. If we love others like we love ourselves, we will be gentle towards them. And harshness towards fellow believers is really just a sign that we lack love. But here's what gentleness is not. I'll give you two words that gentleness is not. Gentleness is not timidity. That's the word we take from 1 Timothy 1.7. Or sorry, 2 Timothy 1.7. God has not given us a spirit of timidity but power and love and discipline. Paul delivered a man in 1 Corinthians 5 over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. And he does that for two reasons. Number one, for the good of the church, and number two, for the good of the man he delivered over. He says, so that his soul might be saved in the day of Christ. Paul said he was basically keeping the man out of hell by handing him over to Satan. Strange thing, huh? I'm going to keep him out of hell by giving him to Satan. That's really weird. Doesn't seem very gentle either. He might, I mean, he might damage the ego of this poor fellow. He might hurt his self-esteem. It's a pretty bold thing to do. Timid people don't hand other people over to Satan. But a gentle person can. Because gentle does not mean timid. Gentle does not mean that a person is afraid to do difficult and painful things. You can be gentle and you can be fearless at the same time. Gentleness doesn't mean cowardice. It doesn't mean unwillingness to do what is right. And so timidity is the devil's counterfeit version of gentleness. It can look the same on the outside, all soft and fuzzy, but it's not. The idea of power under control means that there is power available. Okay? And so the same man that handles his six-pound baby with great tenderness needs to have the strength to get back out on the job and carry 25 boards at a time. Okay? You've got to have the, both of them available. Weakness. Gentleness is not weakness. It's not timidity and it's not weakness. Sometimes those in the leadership of the church are called to exercise great power and authority given to them by God to defend the flock. Metaphorically speaking, 
pastor is like a shepherd and, and, and you are the sheep and it's the pastor's job to protect the sheep and he does so with great gentleness. But when a wolf comes in, it's battle to the death, okay? Either the wolf dies or the sheep die or the shepherd dies. Somebody's going to die, okay? And it's going to be bloody and it's going to be ugly. And gentleness does not mean weakness. It means being that a man must still stand up and fight to the death. And sometimes sheep are going to look at their shepherd who they always thought was so gentle and soft, and he just went ballistic. He just destroyed someone. And they're going to say, he's got blood all over. He's a scary guy. But you need to know that, that, that a pastor, a shepherd, needs to have that kind of strength and power behind those gentle hands. You could think of David, the shepherd, killing the lion and the bear, gentle towards the sheep, mighty, ferocious toward the enemy. Number three, Paul says, we walk worthy by walking in patience. Patience is the self-restraint which does not hastily retaliate a wrong. It's the self-restraint that does not hastily retaliate a wrong. It's the opposite of explosive wrath and revenge. There's a general way in which we all need to learn patience with life itself. Our society demands what we want, when we want it, and we want it fast. I saw a headline, didn't read the article, but I saw a headline this week that says there's new technology coming that's going to be 100 times faster than Wi-Fi, some sort of light technology. And I think, Wi-Fi is pretty fast. I mean, how fast can we read through Facebook anyway. Uh, it seems like pictures load as fast as can scroll. But we want fast. God forbid we sit at a table for an hour before we see our food. God forbid, oh dear, this happened to me this morning. It's coming up here, left myself plenty of time, but just as Highway 169 goes from four lanes to two, found myself behind a guy, there's a few snowflakes coming down, he's doing 39 miles an hour on Highway 169. Patience. Okay. Don't have to right the wrong. <laughs> it's wrong to drive 39 when it's snowing out, when I need to get to Cross Lake. Okay. Oh. Developing patience towards things like that is all well and good, but what Paul primarily has in mind here is, is not patience out there, but patience in here, patience within the church, patience toward each other. Older English Bibles translate this Greek word with the term long-suffering. Patience means suffering for a long time, enduring suffering. If you're sitting at the beach, that's not patience. Patience is allowing your five-year-old to tie his shoes when you're five minutes late, okay? And, and patience is when we are suffering. It's true. Sometimes we suffer at the hands of our fellow Christians, they don't talk to us, or maybe they don't stop talking to us. They look at us funny, or maybe they don't look, us, look at us at all. They don't invite us to their parties, or maybe they get all offended if they do invite you and you can't go. The on and on the list goes. Patience is suffering through each other's faults, its flaws, our flaws, the myriad of ways we often unknowingly and unwittingly do each other wrong. And God is, of course, the supreme example of patience. God is not offended just on a daily basis, but 
as the Puritans would say, God is angry at sin all the time and yet with great patience. God's image, people made in God's image. Think about this. God's created being, the crown of his creation, man. Human beings are despised and raped and abused, murdered, slandered, mistreated, enslaved, belittled, hated, and tortured on a minute-by-minute basis. And yet somehow God, in his patience, withholds his just wrath. Human beings worship creatures, they worship gold, they worship leisure, they worship each other, they ignore him, they take God's name in vain, they curse him when he doesn't meet their expectations. And even the chosen of God, even the redeemed, bicker and squabble. James 4 says that they beg him for things so that they can fulfill their own lusts. Christians, we rebel, we aren't thankful, we hurt each other, and yet God is patient with us. And it's a good thing he's patient with us, isn't it? Because if... God were to stop being patient, the well-deserved fury would pour forth and consume us. You know, one of the things that's built into us as image bearers of God is a distinct and acute sense of justice. Even a child knows and despises the injustice of having a glass of pop that is one millimeter less than his brother's, less full. You know that. They... Four-year-olds can pour two evenly evenly filled cups of juice unbelievably well, better than the greatest chef in all the world. They have that sense of justice. Patience understands that if I was treated with perfect justice, I would be dead in, in hell. And so on the basis of God's justice with me, we are patient with each other, we are suffering long as needed. But patience is not being unwilling to confront sin in other people. Patience is not an unwillingness to confront sin. Patience has limits. Even God's patience has a limit. Think Sodom and Gomorrah. Think 1 Corinthians 11. Think Ananias and Sapphira. Sometimes we can be unwilling to confront sin in each other's lives under the guise of being patient. Let me ask you a question. When do we confront sin and when do we just let it slide? I suppose there's a sliding scale of sin. Some are minor and petty. Sin, yes, but but sin that falls under what I call the love covers a multitude of sins category. But some sins are major and need to be dealt with. 1 Corinthians 5, we made reference to that already. Paul's going to say, overlook sins, and then he's going to say, I'm going to hand this guy over to Satan because he's sleeping with his stepmother. Okay, So we have a sort of sliding scale. We're going to try to figure that out. We're going to try to work through that. Hmm. If, if we had a child molester in our midst, that's no time to be patient, right? You've got all these kids. You, you, you can't have that. And so if we're patient with a child molester, it's really just a wicked refusal to do what is right. Here's what I've learned, and this is a little complex, but it's it's okay, you need to think through this, and I'll just kind of help you as best I can. The easiest way to know when to be patient and just ignore the suffering and when to confront sin is this. This This is how I straighten these out in my mind. When do I be patient? When do I confront sin? When do I not act and when do I act? 
I will be patient when sin is against me, and I will go after it like a rabid tiger when it's against someone else. This helps because the sins that are against me always seem bigger than they really are. Okay? If somebody looks at you funny, I, I say get over it. If they look at me funny, what's the matter with okay? that, That's kind of how that works. Jesus said, turn the other cheek. But he also said it would be better to have a millstone tied around your neck and dropped off a bridge than to endure what he'll do to you if he catches you hurting one of his little ones. Okay, Turn the other cheek. I'm going to wrap a millstone around your neck. That's, that's the tension here. Okay, It's one thing to patiently endure mistreatment against me. It's another thing entirely to watch someone else mistreat someone you love and just let it happen. It's one thing for me to be hit and turn the other cheek. It's another thing to watch the name of Christ be beaten into the ground and look away as if it was a small thing to slander the name of Christ. It's, it's one thing for even me as a pastor to be slandered or spoken ill of. It's going to happen, but it's an entirely another thing for me to sit by and do nothing when it's happening to you. And so we might be patient when we are suffering, but that doesn't mean that we never confront sin, especially when others are being harmed. Patience doesn't mean that we watch someone else get destroyed and say, oh, we just have to be patient. Because at that point, patience becomes unloving and uncaring and unkind. The last word Paul has here, how are we doing? We'll be okay. I preached last week, and I had 25 minutes. I thought, oh, I can't say anything in 25 minutes. It's terrible. And I was like, oh, next week I get to go across lake, and Ken has taught them well, and they're <laughs> so patient. The last word here is tolerance, showing tolerance for one another in love or bearing with one another in love. Here's what tolerance is. It's maintaining composure in the face of another's frustrating or harmful behavior or the word literally means to hold up or to stand upright. It means you don't, you don't fall over when something is pushing on you. You don't fall apart. It's often translated put up with something, similar to patience. We're not yet perfected, and that goes for me, and it goes for you, and it bears into our dynamic of our relationship with each other. We all in some measure, lack humility. We all, in some measure, lack gentleness and patience. And tolerance for each other allows us to cover over those little shortcomings, knowing that the day is soon coming when we will be made like Jesus and those little annoying ticks that drive us nuts won't do that anymore. I've tried to become somewhat of an analyst, uh, just sort of... A I don't know what you'd call it, um, unofficial, but just watching and analyzing relationships that fall apart, in, in part because of experience, the death of relationships uh, several times. There are people who I used to consider my friends that aren't friends any longer, and I wish that wasn't the case, but it is, and, and you have that as well, I'm sure. It's just part of life. And one of the things that causes a relationship to fall apart is a lack of tolerance for little annoying things 
in another person. Here's how it works. When you meet someone for the very first time, you make the assumption that they're normal. You don't know anything about them. So you figure they're, they're just normal. But as a relationship progresses, you begin to discover things in that other person that are weird. And by weird, I mean they're just not like me because I'm the standard of normal, of course. You find out maybe that other person has to wash their car every day or maybe they only do their dishes once a week. You learn that they homeschool, or maybe, maybe they don't homeschool. How weird. Maybe they only eat GMO-free foods. Maybe they don't care if their food is organic or not. Can, can you believe what they feed their kids? You find out that people have struggles in their marriage. They have weird personality tics. They talk too much. They don't talk enough. They share too much information, or they never open up. There's any number of little things that can cause us to not like someone so much anymore. And at some point, we all have to make a conscious decision, and we make this decision even about our spouses. Um, that's at some point, hopefully you make this decision before you're married, but sometimes it happens after. When you realize that this other person is not as perfect as we assumed, we have to decide, can I put up with all the little tiny ways that this other person drives me bonkers? Can I live with it or can't I? Nathaniel Hawthorne, wrote a story, I think it was called The Birthmark. It's about a man who married a perfect wife with the exception that she had a tiny little birthmark on her face. But as, as their relationship progressed and as time went by, pretty soon that's all he could see was that little birthmark. And it seemed in his eyes like at some point it covered her whole face. And he looked at her, that's all he could see was that tiny little imperfection. And so he concocted a remedy to make it fade and go away. And as he began to administer this to her, the birthmark began to fade and she began to be sicker. And eventually the birthmark disappeared. And when the birthmark disappeared, she, she died. Hmm. He killed his wife over a little tiny birthmark. That's a fitting metaphor for our relationships in the church. If we can't tolerate each other's birthmarks, we're eventually going to kill each other. I often speak of relationships that have deteriorated to the point where another person can't even tie their shoes without it offending me. Okay? You just get so annoyed with somebody that they can tie their shoes, and you're like, why do you tie your shoes? Like, I can't believe they got to put their shoe on the chair to tie their shoes. And it's just, they annoy you. I don't know if you've been there. Maybe I'm the weird one and I'm the only one that's ever happened to. I don't think it is. Paul tells the Galatians, if you bite and devour one another, take care that you're not consumed by another, by each other. In other words, if you're going to nibble at each other, eventually you're going to eat each other away. You become cannibals. Tolerance is the refusal to bite. It's the refusal to bite back when we're bitten. It's refusing to be offended by little things, knowing full well that little things become big things very quickly if we let them. Unwillingness to tolerate each other's little habits and personality traits is a sure way to destroy unity and turn the church, at least in the language of Galatians, turn the church into a tribe of cannibals. Here's what tolerance is not. Tolerance is not tolerance of unity destroying sin. 
Again, 1 Corinthians 5, Paul rebukes the Corinthians for putting up with sin in their midst. That's going to destroy. This is going to destroy you. You need to get rid of this. You need to deal with this. And you're, you're proud about it. You're proud that you're putting up with this. No, no, no. You need to get rid of this. And so tolerance is not tolerance of unity destroying sin. Tolerance is not the tolerance of unity destroying doctrine. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. You're so tolerant of false teachers. They bring in another Jesus. They bring in another gospel. And you sit there and you, you tolerate it. What's the matter with you? You need to fight against that. It's going to destroy you. Again, in 2 Corinthians 11, tolerance is not the tolerance of unity destroying people. Paul says, and, and this is sarcasm, I'll try to read it with, I think, the sense that he writes it. For you, being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly. For you tolerate if, tolerate it if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. To my shame, I say that we have been weak in comparison. When someone comes in to destroy the unity of the church, you don't tolerate that. The unity of the church must be preserved. And, and so we have tolerance for some things. We don't have tolerance for others. We don't have tolerance of sin, doctrine, or people that will destroy the unity of the church. The umbrella of all this back in Ephesians 4 is love. We do all this for each other in love. Here's how it happens. It happens and then we'll be done. In verse 3, by diligence, or the ESV says eagerness, being eager to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And I'm just going to camp on this word diligent and, and then we'll be done. How do we make unity in the church happen? We all agree that humility, patience, gentleness, and tolerance are a good thing, and they're a godly thing. That's not the hard part. The hard part is to figure out how to actually implement them. And I think it's here that we can so often go off the rails. When I was growing up, one of the words I used to hear over and over again was the word commitment. Make some sort of a commitment that you're going to do these things. Commit to being patient Tell God you're going to strive to be humble. And sometimes we might think it's as simple as wanting to do something, and so we throw a switch and it happens. Except that you and I know that it doesn't actually work that way. None, none of us desire to have rifts in our relationships. We all want to get along. We all want to taste the sweetness of the unity of the Spirit, binding us or chaining us together in, the, in this peaceful, happy fashion. And so... So how does that not happen? Well, Paul says in verse 3, the word, uh, I should say it this way, the word that he uses is not commit to these things. It's, it's be eager, or, or the not a special version says diligent, being diligent. Diligence is doing the same thing over and over and over again until the task is done. Diligence is overcoming obstacles to the goal. It is continuing forward even when we fail. Diligence is a dogged determination. 
Sometimes we will forgive someone for their sins against us. And I've learned that you have to learn to diligently forgive. Can I tell you, share something with you? There's somebody that hurt me deeply, sinned against me greatly. And I found I had to forgive that person 20 times a day. You know why? Because I kept on forgiving them. Not on purpose, you, see, you understand. I would say I forgive that person and then I would just be angry. And I'd be plotting on my revenge. I said, no, I, I've forgiven them. And this happens over and over and over again. And it, the Lord helped me to learn to doggedly determine to forgive. Forgiveness is a refusal to bring an offense back up. And when someone has really hurt us, we want to bring it back up. We get angry about how badly we've been treated. We have to remind ourselves, I have forgiven when the wound is fresh and emotions run high, we have to do this over and over and over again because in some sense we keep unforgiving. There's a family struggle going on that's pretty close to my household. Massive family struggle. 80-year-old parents, 60-year-old siblings. And one of the boys sent his mother and brother and sister, a letter in which he listed his grievances against them. One of the things that he held against them is he said, when I was a boy, mom, you would give my brother and sister the white meat and I had to eat the wings. Really? But in strife and in conflict, that somehow seems relevant. That Chicken hasn't been eaten for 50 years, but it comes dragging back in, and diligence is saying, I'm not going there. It hurts, yes, but I'm not going there. I refuse to go there. Think of this. When God says, I remember your sins no more, it's not as though God has come down with a case of amnesia. What it does mean is that God, through Christ, has erased your sins from your name. That is, he looks under your name in his big book and there's no sins attached to it. Why aren't they there? Well, they're gone because he's forgiven them, but he still knows that you did that. He's not stupid. But in Christ, he has forgiven them, and he diligently refuses to connect you with them. And so he says, I've removed them from you as far as the east is from the west, and I'm never bringing them back and sticking, them, sticking you with it. It's over. It's done. I'm not sticking you with it again. I'm not going to make a rope out of it and hang you with it. I refuse to do that. That's diligence. There's a sense in which God is diligent in his relationship with us. So when Paul says... We are to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace. He's talking about a conscious decision-making process, daily, sometimes hourly, consciously being gentle, consciously, deliberately being tolerant of each other, and doing so over and over and over and over again until it becomes second nature. Because believe me, this is not second nature for any of us, at least not at first. We don't have the luxury of just deciding once and for all that we're going to walk worthy of our calling, and that's that. It's really a daily and, and more often an hourly 
or moment-by-moment decision to trust God's wisdom, act according to his calling. You know, our calling is a high calling. It is the highest of all callings. And walking worthy of that calling is not going to be easy. It's going to be difficult. But when, when you and when I tell myself how much we suffer at the hands of our fellow believers, now we've entered into covenant relationship with when we are suffering at their hands, I want you to remember the Apostle Paul sitting in prison, ready and willing to die in order that you and I should receive the gospel at all. There is a trail of pain and bloodshed that your salvation is directly connected to. And it's not only the blood of Christ, it's the blood and the pain of those who who brought you to Christ. From a human standpoint, our salvation is founded upon generations of evangelists and pastors who suffered, bled, and many of them died for the sake of the furtherance of the gospel. We dare not dishonor them. We dare not dishonor the Lord Jesus who allowed these men to suffer on our behalf. Those sufferings, chapter 3, verse 13, are our glory. If you want to know how much God loves you, look at the bleeding, dying people that brought you the gospel. That's how much God loves you. And so we suffer for each other's sake, because God loves them. Not all suffering is glorious. Not all suffering is going to be immortalized in Fox's Book of Martyrs. Some suffering is going to take place within the church, in the hands of each other, and nobody else is going to see it. You might cause me to suffer, I might cause you to suffer, but suffer we must at times because We have been called with a high calling, this calling to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace, and it is absolutely imperative that we walk according to that high, high calling. Thank you, Father, for your word this morning. I thank you for this church. I thank you for these dear people. I thank you for what you are doing in their midst. I thank you for bringing them a pastor. I thank you for the struggles that invariably come in here and test their unity and and demonstrate their dedication, their diligence in serving the Lord Jesus Christ in suffering for the sake of the gospel, suffering for the sake of each other because you love them so very dearly and you have called them with a high, high calling. Help them, Father, to walk worthy of that calling that Jesus Christ might be glorified, that his bride might be beautified and we look forward to that day when humility and gentleness and patience and tolerance actually is second nature and we can live in perfect harmony for all of eternity because our redemption will in that day be complete. But until then, Father, help us. You know the weakness of our flesh and we need you desperately to do your work in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.